0: and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. On today's episode, I'm talking about my favorite film by the Greek director Theo Angelopoulos, from 1988, it's Landscape in the Mist. This film follows a brother and sister, Alexandros and Vula, who leave their home in Greece and go on a journey to find their father in Germany. They've never met him and they long to have a connection with him. On the course of their journey, they will see both the best and the worst that humanity has to offer. I talk about Angelopoulos and his cinema and provide an in-depth analysis of the film, exploring subjects like the loss of innocence and loneliness and much more. For listeners in the United States, this film might be hard to find. While Angelopoulos is well known in Europe, and he was well known when he was alive, he died in 2012, he isn't as popular here. This film has haunted me for years, and I needed to talk about it. So I apologize if this is a film that you're not able to find, or if you haven't seen it. It's not readily available right now, but I hope one day that it is. There are spoilers in this episode. In the film, there's also a rape scene and a scene of an animal dying. And I talk in depth about both of those scenes in this episode. I know those subjects might be upsetting for some people. So I wanted to let you know that beforehand. Even if you have not seen this film... I urge you to at least listen to my introductory section where I talk about Angelopolis and how I discovered this film. I think it's a meaningful discussion that you might want to hear. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can access extra episodes, vote in polls and much more. Go to patreon.com/herhead and films for more information. That's patreo herhead and films. You can also review the podcast on iTunes, please give me five stars, tell your friends and followers about Her Head in Films, or you could follow me on social media and interact with me on there in a positive way. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter. There are links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. Before I get to my film discussion, I want to let you know about a fairly new streaming website that I've been loving for a while now. It's called Ovid and it features some of my favorite art house and independent films. Ovid launched about a year ago, and I was immediately in love with it. It's a partnership between several art house distributors, including Icarus Films, Grasshopper Film, and Women Make Movies. I wholeheartedly support and believe in their mission of bringing art house cinema and independent film to the masses. There are films about dance, the arts, social issues, feminism, and there's also fiction films as well. There's so much on the website. I think at this time, more than ever, we need films that help us understand The world around us and the people around us, and also understand history. And I think that's what Ovid provides. Some of my favorite films in their catalog include Kelly Wright Cart's Wendy and Lucy, which is a very moving portrait of a young woman struggling on the margins of society. There's also Patricio Guzman's outstanding Nostalgia for the Light, which plums the mysteries of the cosmos while also delving into the grief of those who lost loved ones during the military dictatorship in Chile. And I have to mention Pavel Pavlikovsky's Ida, a haunting look at the unbearable, and unspeakable trauma of the Holocaust. Ovid has all these films and hundreds more. I really think those of you who listen to and enjoy this podcast would love this streaming website. You can use the code CINEMA to get your first month for free. Go to ovid.tv to start watching, and in the show notes of this episode, I will link to a collection I created of my favorite films on the website in case you want to know where to start or you want to know what some of my favorites are. So now I'm going to talk about Theo Angelopoulos's Landscape in the Mist, a film that has haunted me and that I have not been able to forget ever since I saw it a few years ago. I'm so excited to share this episode with you. Something I like to talk about a lot on this podcast is how I discover certain films, because I think that it's interesting and it's productive to think about how we come across films, how they come into our lives. Do I remember the way that I found every single film that I've ever watched? No, but there are certain films in my life where I genuinely remember (laughs) the process of discovering the film, of coming across it. I'll remember somebody who recommended it to me. I'll remember seeing an image of it and going and watching the film. And with Landscape in the Mist, I have a very specific way that I discovered this film. It came at an important time in my life. The person who brought it into my life also inspired me to watch other films that I also love. So in 2004, 14 I read a book called Last Words from Montmartre and it was written by a Taiwanese writer named Chu Maogen. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I did my best to find the pronunciation of it. It was very, very difficult. This was an extremely important book in my life. It was published by one of my favorite publishers, the New York Review of Books Classics, which is in many ways similar to the Criterion Collection, but instead of preserving World cinema the way that Criterion does. New York Review of Books Classics preserves a lot of world literature, translates a lot of books into English that would normally not get translated. And Last Words from Montmartre is one of those books. The synopsis for the book is on their website, and I'm just going to read it. I read this book six years ago, <laughs> so it was important to me. I enjoyed it. I liked it. It was important, but I cannot remember a lot about it. I will be honest with you. I have a really terrible memory, and so I'm not going to be able to put it in my own words what this book, what the book is about. So I thought I would just read you the synopsis from the website. Quote, when the pioneering Taiwanese novelist Chu Maojin committed suicide in 1995 at age 26, she left behind her unpublished masterpiece, Last Words from Montmartre, unfolding through a series of letters written by an unnamed narrator. Last Words tells the story of a passionate relationship between two young women, their sexual awakening, their gradual breakup, and the devastating aftermath of their broken love. In a style that veers between extremes, from self-deprecation to pathos, compulsive repetition to rhapsodic musings, reticence to vulnerability. Chu's genre-bending novel is at once a psychological thriller, a sublime romance, and the author's own suicide note, unquote. So Chu Malogen was a writer in the 1990s and she ended up committing suicide when she was only 26 years old and she has gained fame over the years in the queer community and she's become a pioneer of sorts of queer literature in Taiwan and around the world. She was a lesbian and the book is about a relationship that she had with a woman. In this book, Chu talked a lot about cinema She absolutely loved European art house cinema and the book is just filled with references to all kinds of different films by different directors. Um, She even directed a film herself called Ghost Carnival. As I was reading this book in 2014, I decided that I would make note of the films that she mentioned and try to seek them out. Landscape in the Mist was one of the films I ended up watching as a result. Other films I ended up watching and subsequently loving thanks to Chu's book were Wong Kar-Wai's Chungking Express and Tsai Ming Liang's Vive L'Amour. And I became a big fan of these directors, especially Wong Kar-Wai. So I think I actually... Found Wang Kar Wai through Chu's book, so needless to say, Chu Maojin was essential in my formation as a cinephile, and she inspired me to seek out films I would not have seen otherwise. And I'm forever grateful to her and to her book. I discovered. Theo Angelopoulos, obviously, because I'm doing this episode. I had never even heard of him until I read Last Words from Montmartre, and I also found Wong Kar Wai and Cy Ming Liang. I really enjoyed King Express. I was really moved by Vive L'Amour. So all of these films that she's brought into my life, and obviously I love Landscape in the Mist, like if I had not read her book, I probably never would have seen those films. I did an episode about a Wong Kar Wai film called In the Mood for Love, which I'm sure many of you have seen. It's one of my most downloaded episodes too. It's like in the top 10, I think. She brought all these films into my life and exposed me to these directors that otherwise I pro- I'm not saying I would have never watched Wong Kar Wai. I mean, of course, right? And who knows? I may have watched some of him before I read her book. I can't remember. It was so long ago. But I'm just saying, like, it would have maybe taken me longer to discover those directors. I think that I read the book in 2014. I know that. I didn't actually watch Landscape in the Mist until 2017. I went and checked my logs that I keep. And I remember that I think I saw Landscape in the Mist through Mubi. I think Mubi showed some Angelopolis films, like I guess in 2017 or around that time. And I think that's how I saw the film. But if I hadn't read about him in Chu's book then maybe I wouldn't have been curious about the film. Maybe I would have just ignored it or not paid attention to it or watched something else. Once a film is mentioned to you and it's on your radar, then that really changes everything and you become interested in it and then you know, well, if it's ever streaming or it's ever available, I should check this out. And so it it does make a difference. I really love how one work of art can lead us to another. I talk about this a lot on the podcast. You can read a book that mentions a film, and then you can go and watch that film as a result, and that can become one of your favorite films, or you can fall in love with that director the way I did with Landscape in the Mist and Theo Angelopoulos. I love that process of discovery, and I love that interconnection between different art forms. Like recently I read an article about Alfred Hitchcock and how he adapted some of the books of Daphne du Maurier and Patricia Highsmith. Remember he did Strangers on a Train. That was written by Patricia Highsmith. He did The Birds and Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. I saw those Hitchcock films, I think, a few of them before I read those women's books. His films are what got me interested in Daphne du Maurier and Patricia Highsmith and I love them. Now they're some of my favorite writers and sometimes it's the opposite. It's like sometimes you'll read a book and that'll lead you to a film and then sometimes you can watch a film and that will lead you to a book or that will lead you to a writer. Like recently there was a film by Josephine Decker called Shirley and I like to think that maybe people who watch that film might get interested in Shirley Jackson. She's one of my favorite writers. The Haunting of Hill House is a very important book to me and I actually have an episode about the film adaptation of the book by Robert Wise, The Haunting from the 1960s. I love that film and I absolutely love the book. I also like We Have Always Lived in the Castle, also by Shirley Jackson. I like her short story The Lottery. I still remember reading that when I was really young and I know there's been some adaptations on Netflix, I think. So I like to think that maybe some of these books, uh, some of these movies or some of these TV shows will get people interested in Shirley Jackson and her amazing work, both her novels and her short stories. I find her work to be just incredible. She's absolutely one of my favorite writers. So sometimes a film will lead you to a book and then sometimes a book can lead you to a film. And I love that. I love that process of learning, that process of discovery, uh, the revelations that you can have. Like, I just... I love it, y'all. I really do. (laughs) Okay, so I wanted to share what Chu Maojin wrote about Landscape in the Mist in her book, Last Words from Montmartre. And so this is what she wrote. And I absolutely love it. I think this quote is awesome, beautifully expresses the power of landscape in the mist and in a more general way talks about the transcendent power of cinema in our lives. This is a wonderful passage. So she wrote quote, yesterday I went to see Angelopolis's film Landscape in the Mist again when the little boy witnessed the death of the donkey and kneeled on the ground weeping pathetically in the center of the screen I cried pitifully with him. I am that little boy, an innocent child who weeps over the death of an animal. Walking with white whale out of the movie theater into the cool Parisian night's faint breeze, she said that the movie was so beautiful she could die right there. And I replied that with someone by my side with whom I could share the beauty of such a movie, I could die that night too. Movies are like that. Life is like that and love even more so, unquote. In that passage, White Whale is the name of the woman that she's with. I thought that quote was just gorgeous. Like I can see Chu and this woman walking out of the art house movie theater after they've seen Landscape in the Mist and I can just see them walking together talking about this film. And can you imagine seeing this film at an actual movie theater? Where I live in the rural South, I don't have an art house theater near me. So it's never really been part of my life very much. I am completely dependent on either DVD or streaming on my laptop, Um, but I know that with the pandemic now, a lot of people who were able to see some of these films, these art house films in a movie theater, they can no longer do that because a lot of them have closed and are shut down right now. And I imagine that has to be a very difficult experience if you're somebody who's used to going to the theater and seeing things in that way. And I just imagine like what was it like in the 1990s or the late 1980s when a lot of this amazing European art house cinema was coming out. You know, think of Krzysztof Kieślowski releasing his Three Colors trilogy, for instance. I still remember an episode of Sex in the City where Miranda goes on a date with a guy, and I think he wants to go see one of the films from the Three Colors trilogy. And I don't think Miranda is impressed at all, but I remember when I was watching that episode, I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I wish I could find a guy who wanted to go see Krzysztof Kieślowski's Three Colors Trilogy with me in a movie theater. That would absolutely be my dream date with, with a guy, is that we go watch Kieślowski together. Like, can you imagine? I think I would fall in love right there. That would be my dream date, or just hanging out and listening to music from the 1990s with a guy and us just talking about the 1990s and how much we loved it. Like we could put Foo Fighters Everlong on or something like that. I love that song Everlong. Or put on the Gin Blossoms and just like sit and talk about our lives and our dreams. That would be another dream date of mine. But can you imagine seeing some of these films in actual movie theaters? Like to me, that is such a Dream. (laughs) I would love to see Kishlovsky on the big screen. I would love to see Tarkovsky. I would love to see Angelopolis up there. (laughs) And so that's what Chu Maojin got to see. She got to go in and see Landscape in the Mist in an actual theater, in that experience, in that atmosphere. Like I am so freaking jealous. And then I can see her with this woman walking out of the theater and them talking about wanting to die because they've seen the most amazing film. And I just totally get it. Like I absolutely get that feeling of like after you've seen a film, you just feel like, okay, <laughs> I can die happy because I've watched Stalker by Andrei Tarkovsky or I've seen Kishlovsky's Decalogue. Life is perfect. You know, there's nothing more that I need to do or say because everything is just so heightened and electric, you know, electrically charged because of this gorgeous film that you've seen, right? I just love that quote so much because I really think she gets into the depths of like, why we go to cinema, why we love these films. is for that experience. That experience of feeling so alive and feeling so happy to be alive. Like that's what some of the greatest art does for me is that it makes me feel so intimately connected to my soul and to myself that I feel a sense of transcendence and I feel a sense of being almost unbearably alive, just overwhelmed by life. Like, I don't even know how to talk about it. But that's what some of the greatest art does for me. That's what a great film does for me. It's what a great book does for me. Where I, am, I feel so alive inside my body. And I feel grateful to be on this earth right now. Grateful that I am alive to experience this work of art. And I think that this quote from Chu Malajan's book perfectly encapsulates that feeling. So I just want to give a little bit of information about Theo Angelopoulos because I feel like a lot of you listening may not know him. It's obviously, I think the listeners of this episode are going to be either people who know this film and love this film and absolutely know who Angelopoulos is. And then there's going to be those of you who are like, what is this? Who is he? I've never heard of this person. And so I want to give a little information to that second group. He was born in 1935 in Athens, Greece, and he actually died in 2012 after a traffic accident. He was hit by a motorcycle while he was trying to cross a very busy street in Greece. He was 76 years old at the time, and he was also working on a film called The Other Sea. So unfortunately, we lost him very suddenly. It was not an expected death at all. Theo Angelopoulos lived through many major historical events, including the Second World War and a civil war in Greece. The Germans occupied Greece starting in 1940, during the Second World War, Greece was subsequently liberated in 1944, but shortly thereafter, a civil war broke out in the country. Theo's father was suddenly arrested around this time and basically disappeared for nine months. And during this time, the family thought that he was most likely dead. And then all of a sudden, he showed up again out of the blue and he was released they never knew why he was arrested. There was no reason for it. So that was a very traumatic experience for Angelopoulos. Greek history in general informs Angelopoulos's films, both modern and ancient. He includes ancient Greek history and things like the Odyssey and uh, things like that. And then also the more recent Greek history like the Civil War, and different things that happened in the country. The complexities of Greek history haunt his films, and they are an important part of a lot of his films. At first, he studied law, but he abandoned it in the 1960s, and he wanted to focus on film. He ended up studying film in Paris, and he studied under filmmaker Jean Rouche. Angelopoulos was involved in leftist politics for many years, until he became very cynical about politics, and he also became very disillusioned as well. Landscape in the Mist coincided with a period in Theo Angelopoulos's career where he moved away from politics, and he wanted to mine his own personal experiences. Landscape in the Mist is the third film in what Theo would call a trilogy of silence, the other films that are part of the trilogy are Voyage to, to Cythera* and The Beekeeper. Landscape in the Mist won the Silver Lion at the Venice Film Festival when it was released. Some of the directors who influenced Angelopoulos were Michelangelo Antonioni, Orson Welles, and Carl Theodore Dreyer. Angelopoulos is known for the length of his shots. He does very long takes and he uses tracking shots as well. He really forces us to think about time as it's passing and as the shots unfold. You can feel the presence of time. In his book, The Films of Theo Angelopoulos, A Cinema of Contemplation, Andrew Horton, points out that this also makes us concentrate on the image before us because there's also very little dialogue in Angelopoulos' films. It's about the image on the screen and often the sound as well. There's always some kind of sound and there's also a score usually in the films. Horton writes that Theo is interested in rural Greek landscapes. Much of the population of Greece actually lives in the city of Athens. It's very condensed there. So the rural tends to get neglected, but Theo was fascinated by it. Horton writes that Angelopolis focuses on, quote, the other Greece, the one that has been neglected, repressed, rejected, covered up. It is a Greece of rural spaces, long silences, mythic echoes, missed connections winter landscapes, wanderers, refugees, actors without a stage or audience, lonely expressways at night, depopulated villages, cheap cafes, and crumbling hotel rooms, unquote. and much of that describes Landscape in the Mist. Angelopoulos tends to keep his distance from the actors, and he does not do a lot of close-ups in his films. He didn't like to edit a lot. He also put considerable thought into the sound in his films. Theo's work is not that widely known here in the United States, None of his films, as far as I know right now in 2020, are available for streaming. If some are available, it's not very many. But he's quite famous in Europe, and he was well known there in his lifetime when he was alive. Andrew Horton writes this about Theo's cinema. Quote, Angelopoulos can be counted as one of the few filmmakers in cinema's first hundred years who compel us to redefine what we feel cinema is and can be. But there is more. His films open us to an even larger question that becomes personal to each of us. How do we see the world within us and around us? Unquote. It surprises me that Angelopoulos' films are not more well known here in the United States or even among cinephile circles here in the U.S. I don't see him talked about a lot. I would love to see a box set of Angelopoulos' by somebody like the Criterion Collection. I think he would be a perfect fit. I'm quite surprised that they haven't released any of his films. I can only imagine that perhaps they can't get the rights to it or something like that. I don't know. But it would seem to just be the perfect uh, company to release uh, Angelopoulos's films. Now, I did hear, maybe it was last year, that there was a fire at the home where a lot of his possessions were destroyed and it was really sad to hear about that. It turns out that the house where his widow lived and where his archive was burned down. So all kinds of things burned down. Correspondence that he had with people, things in his office, all kinds of things were destroyed. That sounds devastating and I remember when I first read about it feeling very devastated by that news that his archive had burned down and that his house had burned down. So who knows how much we've lost. Of his work. I don't know. I feel like he should be better known. I feel like his work should be circulating more. I'm, I'm not sure why it's not. I don't have answers for that. I feel like there are themes in his work that really resonate with today and I wanted to share some quotes by him that I just really loved. I was reading some of his interviews and I just thought, this man beautifully articulates himself and beautifully describes things. And you don't always come across that with directors. Some directors are a lot better at creating films than they are talking about them. So I just wanted to share some of the quotes I came across. And here's one quote, immigration and diaspora, refugees chased away from their own homeland, crossing borders and seeking shelter. These are among the most burning social issues of our time, unquote. Does that, does that not sound familiar with the recent wave of refugees that were going into europe some of them went through greece as well as italy when you know we're talking about the the upcoming effects of climate change where people are going to be moving places there's going to be refugees and immigration uh you know these the crossing of borders people seeking shelter as he said these are things that are very real I'll just say it, with the pandemic right now here in the United States, there are people who want to leave the United States and go to other countries. There are people who want to immigrate and leave. So I'm just saying this is a very important issue of people crossing borders, of people losing their homelands, having to go to other countries because of war, unrest, the effects of climate change. Whatever reason there might be, a pandemic that you want to escape, a corrupt government that you want to escape, that's in... Angelopoulos's work and if you think about landscape in the mist that's what these children are doing they are crossing a border they're going from Greece into Germany they're going to another country going on a journey to another country he was very in touch with the with exile with the refugee with immigration with the crossing of borders like he his work understands that he sort of understands this idea of not having a home or losing a homeland. And I think that's something that resonates now. And I really liked this uh, that he said about his films, quote, it all depends on the spectator and to what extent he is willing to do his share of the work when he watches my film. The film supplies him with a certain amount of information, but it is only by completing it with his own input that he can hope to enjoy the film, unquote. I think somebody like Angelopoulos And other directors too who might be seen as difficult or challenging. I think sometimes they're so challenging because they don't necessarily want a passive spectator or a passive viewer of the film. They don't want a viewer who wants everything spelled out and for everything to be put on a silver platter in front of them. And here is all the meaning. And here's how you should interpret everything. And here's here's what it all means. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to think for yourself. You don't have to put the pieces together. I love this idea that the viewer completes the film. And I believe that. And I've said as much in other episodes where I feel like after the credits roll of some films, the film has a second life. It has another life within you and within the viewer and the meaning that you create out of the film and the conclusions that you come to about it and how you see it. I love that he says that. You know, now that I think about it, I think in many ways I'm completing a film When I talk about it in an episode on this podcast, I'm figuring out what it means to me and what I get out of it. So I think there are some directors that want a more active spectator, a more active viewer who is creating their own meaning. And there is so much of that in Landscape of the Mist. For instance, the hand that comes out of the water, the statue hand, right? What is that? What, what does that mean? Or the ending of the film with the tree. What, what is that? Why are these children hugging this tree? So there's all kinds of moments like that throughout the film. Or think of the actor, the troupe of actors that are there, um, that are kind of elderly. What is the meaning of that? So we don't often see films like that these days where everything is not spelled out <laughs> and sometimes... The director puts in things or puts in elements or scenes or images that don't necessarily have a direct connection to the narrative, but they're just there and they're mysterious and they're inexplicable. You have to dig around and you have to interpret it in however you want to and you have to create meaning out of the images that you're seeing. And some people don't like that. They want all the pieces to fit together perfectly. They want there to be some kind of explicit meaning or explanation. They're not interested in the mystery, you know. And his work in a way reminds me a bit of Kishlovsky. I think Kishlovsky had that in a lot of his films. Like with the Three Colors Trilogy, think about the elderly woman who puts the bottle, the glass bottle in the recycling bin and she's always hunched over. What is the point of her? What is the point of that? Why? <laughs> or think about in three colors blue the guy outside playing the music right that juliet benoche's husband had composed w- what what does that mean or think of the marionette doll in the double life of veronique what is that like there's these elements that are in the films where you're like i don't know what to make of that that's unexpected that's um mysterious And I think we have that in Landscape in the Mist where you have to come to the film and you have to make your own meaning out of it. And you complete the film with what you bring to it. You bring to it your life experience, your memories, The other films that you've watched, the books that you've read, the connections that you make, the associations that you find, all kinds of things like that. And so in a way, even though a film like Landscape in the Mist might seem slower to some people and the takes are longer and all of that, it actually means that you have to be a bit more active and you have to participate more. And pay attention to what you're looking at and what you're seeing. And I love that. I love that about the film for sure. And uh, in an interview from 1988, and all of these quotes are from the book Interviews, and I'll have links to all my sources in the show notes of the episode. And it's just a book of interviews uh, that Theo Angelopoulos did during his life. And he did one in 1988, talking about landscape in the mist, and he said this, quote, I couldn't really tell you the significance of the stone hand pulled out of the harbor. The basic structure of this film, as I told you, was similar to a fairy tale, which gives you much greater freedom to introduce elements that are outside the logic of the plot, but one should not try to systematically unravel their meanings, for you risk losing the flow of the narrative." Unquote, so he's kind of trying to tell you like, don't dissect it to death, don't try to unravel the mystery as you're watching it. Maybe do that after you've seen the film, and you can put the pieces together for yourself. so even he, as the person who created the film, acknowledges that he doesn't have the answers for every image and for what everything means in the film. But I love that he likens the film to a fairy tale, and because of that that means that he can introduce things into the film that you would not normally put in there. There are things that are maybe surreal or outside everyday life, outside of some corner of some kind of uniform logic or what you would expect. What that does is that it creates moments of surprise Moments of mystery, moments of possibility, different meaning. I love that about the film. I love all these things in it that that are unexpected and and that you have to ascribe your own interpretation to. And in that same interview, he also said this quote, I believe the past is my own personal past, dragged into the present by my occupation as a filmmaker. The tree at the end of the film is the tree from Voyage to Cythera* a reference to my own personal film landscape in the course of this picture the children cross a film landscape in order to reach at the end a different film landscape which i believe should offer them renewed hope i would like to believe the world will be saved by cinema cinema is my world and it is the scope of all my journeys. I am always searching for secret little utopias that will enchant me. I am doing my best to believe in the relevance of these trips I am constantly embarking on through my films, unquote. I just absolutely love that. I would like to believe the world will be saved by cinema. Who says that now? Does anybody say that? I think I long for the days when people actually believed that. When people actually believed that the world could be saved by cinema. I mean, it's a beautiful sentiment, isn't it? And I think deep down in my soul and in my heart, I believe that the world could be saved by cinema too. I think that cinema could dissolve some of those borders, that exist between us as people. I especially think that when it comes to world cinema, I think that could be so beneficial to people's lives to watch films about people living in other countries who speak different languages, who live in different cultures, who have lives that are different from you. And that watching those films that give you a window into another way of life and into other cultures and other worlds, I do truly believe that that can be life-changing and that it can be transformative and that it can help you see other people as human, right? It can make you feel a connection with people who seem so different from you and seem so far away from you. And I just feel like, there is that possibility with world cinema. You know, even cinema in your own country that is about people who are different from you. I really feel like it could have an effect. It could bring people together. It could create connection. It could help us see that we have more things in common than we realize. That we have a common humanity. That though we are different, we do share some universal experiences. That our differences don't have to tear us apart. (laughs) That we can be different. But then at the end of the day, we're still all human beings. And I know it seems so naive to say that. And I'm not saying really that cinema can save the world. I don't know if I believe that in this day and age with politics being as toxic as they are and with the world just descending into the craziness and the chaos right now. I mean our government here in the United States has profoundly failed us in the course of this pandemic. It is impossible to see you know over a hundred thousand people dead from this pandemic and then to say that cinema can save the world right. We need governments that save people. You know, film directors can't change a virus or change a pandemic, right? But I still have to believe that art matters, and I still have to believe that art can make a difference. And that it can open us up to one another. I think that's a big problem is the dehumanization that happens. The demonization that happens. The isolation and the disconnection that we feel in this world. And particularly in American society. We're so closed off from one another. We're so divided. And so I like to think that film could bridge the distance between film could bridge the gap somehow. I want to think that. I want to believe that. I want to believe like Angelopoulos that cinema can save the world. We can be saved by film. It's such a beautiful idea and I love that he said that. I love that he believed that. I love that he made films from that belief in his heart. That he was making films that mattered. He was making films that said something about Greece. About Greek history. About the Greek people. And about the culture that he lived in. And the world that he inhabited. And the history that he survived. And that he was keeping it alive. Preserving it in his films. And through his films creating a space to remember. And a space to explore different issues. Like exile. Like borders. Like refugees, like war, and trauma, and all of these things that are in a lot of his films. Even though I haven't seen all of them, I certainly want to see more. So I just think his work has so much to offer us, and I just love that. The world can be saved by cinema. Maybe we need more directors who believe that, even if it's not 100% true all the time. You know, imagine the film somebody would make who believed that and maybe we should try to make art from that perspective. This could save the world. This could change something. Like, I guess I love that idealism. I feel like we live in a time where idealism is dead, where dreams are dead, in a way. There is so much fear about the future, whether it's climate change, whether it's the political landscape, whether it's the oppression of different minorities and everything that's happening. And there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of inequality. There's a lot of suffering. And it's really just hard to hold on to your ideals. And I think maybe this film speaks to some of that of, to me, this is a film about loneliness, about alienation, about disillusionment. You know, these children and what they see in the world, the world that they have to confront on their journey from Greece to Germany. But at the same time, for all the painful experiences that these children undergo in the course of their journey, they also at the end of the film seem to have some kind of hope And they seem to have arrived somewhere with potential and possibility. And I do think that with the tree, Angelopolis gives us some kind of hope. He gives us something to hold on to, something to cling to after we've seen all that ugliness. I've talked a bit about Angelopolis how I found this film. There wasn't really a lot of information about the making of the film. It's been really hard to find this kind of information about the film and about Angelopolis, so I won't go into any kind of information about that, but now I will talk about Landscape in the Mist, what I feel, what I think about it, and the way that it's just profoundly affected me. To say, it's a real honor to talk about this film. It's a real privilege. When I re-watched it, I just had so many emotions and so many feelings about it that came flooding back. I go on about this in other episodes, so I will not say it over and over again, but there is something very powerful about re-watching films. Sometimes you forget how much a film affected you, or sometimes when you re-watch it when you're older and you've gone through different life experiences, the film can just have a different intensity, potency, find things in it that you never expected to find, and Landscape in the Mist is one of these films that I have held it inside of me, just curled up like a little rosebud or something inside of me, and then to re-watch it again, it just blossomed all over again, and the mystery, and the beauty, and the unspeakable power of this film was there from the first moment. The first scene, the first note of the score, I was completely transported. I was completely part of this film as I watched it again. First saw it in 2017, now it's 2020. Three years have passed. I honestly thought I had seen it longer ago for some reason. I don't know why, and it has stayed in my memory and it has stayed with me and anytime I see images of it, I rarely see images of it. It's not a film that gets talked about a lot and I know that me talking about it, it's not easily accessible. It's not easily available right now as I do this episode, but I just hope that those of you who are listening, you either don't mind spoilers or you've already seen it and you already have strong feelings about this film and you already love it the way that I do. I wish it was more widely available. If you ever get a chance to see it, you should. If you ever get a chance to see it a second time, if you've already seen it, I highly recommend watching it a second time or even more. I think this is a film that really takes on even more dimension when you rewatch it, for sure. It's one of those films for me, and again, I'm like a broken record sometimes. It's one of those films that does not end after the credit rolls. It has a second life. Inside of you. It's a film for me that does not just exist on a screen. You become part of the film and the film becomes part of you. That's the way I feel about Landscape in the Mist. It's something that you carry around inside you. It's a film that you integrate into your life and images will flash in your mind and you'll find yourself thinking about it um, without even realizing it. And this is just the kind of film where it, it's a contemplative film, a slower film. It is a film, you know, with mist and silence and mystery. And it gradually unfolds and gradually blossoms open. The experience of that was incredibly calming and incredibly comforting right now in my life. When I feel like I have this panic that's just teeming underneath my skin because of the pandemic here in the United States that is raging out of control. Almost 150,000 people have died at this point. Vulnerable people, people's lives who mattered, and it feels like there's not an acknowledgement of their lives. There's not this, this collective mourning that's taking place and things are just getting worse and worse. And I have a lot of fear that I carry around with me, both politically in terms of the pandemic and the economy and all the things outside of me. That are happening. All the things that I'm powerless against. And if you think about it, Angelopoulos was concerned with those issues. He was concerned with historic events. He was concerned with the individual's place in society and place in the world and how we as people navigate this world when so much is beyond our control and these larger events are taking place. That's why he was interested in history and all of these big questions, I think, that are in his work. So I have this political stuff, happening. And then I also have this personal stuff happening in my life that I don't even know really how to talk about. And I won't because I just don't have the language for it. And so I just have a lot going on, and I just have this panic teeming underneath my skin and just inside of me at all times, threatening to erupt, threatening to get out of control. And I have to find a way to keep that panic, keep that anxiety, keep that terror at bay. And watching a film like this helps me with that. And it takes my mind somewhere else, it helps me focus. It helps me dream, it helps me imagine, it gives me hope, it gives me solace, it gives me comfort, it gives me beauty, it also gives me brutality. There are brutal moments in this film and that cannot be ignored. But the act of experiencing art is what gives me hope and solace and is what helps me survive like just today I was I woke up and I just felt this panic about everything and I was just lying in bed and then I started to think about well I get to talk about landscape in the mist I'm gonna record this episode and then tonight maybe I can watch some films and I thought to myself this is the power of cinema for me this is the way that cinema saves me and maybe cinema can't save the world the way Angelopolis thought at one time. But maybe it can save us. It can save us individually at times when we need it, at times when we're alone and crawling and drowning and struggling and trying to hold on to something. That's what this film is for me. It's something to cling to and to hold on to. Kind of like the children when they, they find the tree at the end of the film you could see that as almost a life raft a lifeline that they find and that they hold on to that here is their destination And the father is not there. Nobody is there for them. They have weathered much of this journey by themselves. That's the loneliness of the film. There's a deep loneliness and solitude and alienation and disillusionment in this film, as I said earlier. But that tree for me represents something that these children are holding on to and that is perhaps keeping them alive. And I feel in a similar way about this film. That this film is one of the things that saves me and keeps me going. I know there might be some people listening who think that's really extreme and really out there to say. And maybe other people don't, don't engage with film in this way or they don't experience art in this way. But it's just all I've ever known and all I've ever had. I didn't have religion growing up because I'm an atheist. I didn't have a lot of friends. I didn't have a lot of family that cared about me. I still don't have a lot of people that care about me. So art has always been that thing that I have turned to for beauty and for solace and comfort and transcendence. And it always will be. So this film is just curled up inside my heart, <laughs> and I, I love it. And I'm excited to talk about it with you on this episode. So first, I just want to get some of the basics out of the way. Film came out in 1988. Directed by Theo Angelopoulos, as we know. The cast is comprised of three actors who play the three main characters in this film. The first is Vula, and that is her name in the film, and she's played by the actress. Tania Palealogo I apologize. I could not find how to pronounce this young girl's name. She was around 11 years old when she did the film. The little boy is Alexandros in the film and he's played by Michaelis Zeke. He was around five years old. And then we have Orestes. He was played by Stratos Zortzaglou. And again, I apologize. The Greek pronunciations are extremely difficult for me and I was not really able to find some of these names. So we have have Vula, Alexandros, and Orestes. So I'm going to go through and I'm going to talk about different themes, different scenes, and things like that. It's not going to necessarily be chronological. These were just different parts of the film, different aspects of the film that I wanted to talk about. First, I want to talk about how I see this film as really a film about a journey. An Odyssey, and Andrew Horton, in his book about Theo Angelopoulos, said that he was very interested in Greek literature, ancient Greek history, and that he was very interested in the Odyssey. And I think you can see some of that in this film. And Andrew Horton also said, and I agree with this as well, that Landscape in the Mist is Angelopoulos's most accessible film, and I think it is. I don't think you necessarily need to know a lot about Greek history in the twenty. century to understand Landscape in the Mist. Whereas I think probably with some of Angelopolis's other films, you might need to understand Greek culture or Greek history. For me, Landscape in the Mist, it's sort of elliptical in a way, and it's mysterious. There's something about it to me that transcends borders. It transcends a country. I think it's something that anybody in any country can understand it. It's a film told a lot through imagery as well, more so than dialogue. There really is not a lot of speaking in this film. There's some voiceovers by the children with the letters that they write to their father, but overall... It's a a film told in images, which I think makes it more accessible as well. You don't necessarily have to understand everything that's happening in order to feel the emotions of the film. And I really liked a story that Andrew Horton wrote mentioned in his book, where he showed, I think he, Andrew Horton has lived in Greece for a really long time, and he showed the film to some American students who were studying in Greece. They were supposed to have a discussion after the film, and none of the students could have the discussion because they were so emotionally moved by the film. It has that effect on people, I think. And so I see this as I think what makes the film so accessible is the simplicity of it and the simplicity of the narrative that it is about two children who are going on a journey trying to find their father. That is the most basic narrative of it, the most basic premise, and you can easily tell people, like if they ask, well, what's Landscape in the Mist about? Two children who go on a journey to find their father. You can easily sum it up in a sentence in that way, and yet the narrative may be simple, but the film is not. The film is deeply complex, deeply mysterious. You couldn't necessarily explain to someone else, oh, well, there's a stone hand that comes out of the water, (laughs) you know, or... Or there's an animal that dies and that's very powerful. Or there's a man who plays a violin in a cafe. There's a bride that runs out of her bridal party or or her wedding party and is crying in the snow. There's all these images in the film and, and these moments, you know, a young girl is violated. There's all these things that are in the film that happen over the course of the journey that you can't necessarily explain to somebody else. But I see this as a journey from innocence to experience in many ways. I see it as a loss of innocence. That's primarily how I would define the film is the loss of innocence of these children. And it's also a coming of age in many ways. It's a coming of age for Vula, who comes to learn things about the world that are very harsh and very painful, so I want to talk about the journey itself. It's a very moving film because it's about children, and I think that's also what makes it accessible is that it is the fairy tale type thing that Angelopolis mentioned earlier. It's a fairy tale. It's not necessarily logical all the time. There's space to put whimsical things or surreal or inexplicable things into it. And I think also when you watch a film about children and you yourself are no longer a child or even close to your childhood. I'm 31, so I have much more distance from that time in my life. I felt such tenderness towards. towards these children. And I felt such emotion for them as well. And I remembered being a child myself. And I think that's what films like this do. When you watch a a film about children as an older adult or I guess a young adult. Would I be considered a young adult? I don't know, but I thought about when I was a kid and I thought about when like, <laughs> you know, when you and your friend would uh, plan to run away, but of course you never did it. I mean, I literally had that uh, happen when I was very, very young with one of my friends. We were gonna run away, like we, we almost sort of planned it out. And when you think back on it, you're like, what was I thinking? How would I have found food? Where would I have lived? You know, when you think about a child running away from home, you just think, oh my gosh. And you realize that when you were a child, you had no conception of the world at all. You did not understand the way that the world works. That's the thing about being a child. You have no experience. You have very little knowledge of the world world. The world outside of your house or outside of your community or school. And so to see these children actually run away, you realize the danger that is involved in that. This film is about a loss of innocence. It's about two children's confrontation with the world. A world that they are not prepared for. And really that none of us are. I mean, I'm 31 and I can't say that I handle the world any better sometimes than Vula or Alexandros. I often want to Go back to my childhood to the before of my life. I talk about it often on this podcast, but I lost my father when I was a teenager and he passed away in 2006. I was 16 years old at the time. It was devastating. It was catastrophic. It caused all kinds of chaos and pain and suffering in my life that I'm still dealing with. It caused me to be suicidal. It caused me to be depressed. It caused anxiety and panic. It caused me and my mom to be plunged into poverty and to struggle financially. It caused me great turmoil in my my soul and in my body. You know, it affected me physically. It affected my health. I became agoraphobic and all kinds of things that I have struggled with for over a decade at this point. I mention all of this because I have to. Because in, in order for you to understand the before of my life, you have to understand the after and the horror that his death brought into my life, and that I still don't know how to cope with. And so in this episode, I will be talking a little bit about it. It's not going to be the centerpiece of this episode by any means, because I know I talk about it a lot. And I don't know if people get tired of hearing it. I mean, if they do get tired of hearing it, think of how tired I get living it. But this is my life. And it's the only thing I can talk about and that I can't express. So I often wish I could be a child again. I could be Vula's age because that's the before of my life. It's before death and loss and grief and the knowledge of just how hard everything is. How brutal life can be. And you realize that no one is going to come along and save you. That's also what I learned after my father died is that nobody was going to save me nobody was going to be there for me. It was me and my mom. That's all. We didn't have support from a lot of friends and family who cared about us. It was just me and her. I realized that I couldn't really trust people. And I realized I lost so much when I lost him. I didn't just lose this person. That was bad enough. I lost this illusion that I had about life, that if something terrible were to happen to me, that people would be there to help me and that I would not suffer alone. But instead I learned that I was alone, that I was deeply, eternally alone. I am eternally alone. I truly believe that. And the only thing that helps me with that loneliness and that solitude is art. is films and books and all of this stuff. No one is going to save you. That's what I learned. And I think that's what these children learn too. In their journey, I see some of my own journey. I see some of my own loss of innocence. Some of my own coming of age. Some of my own disillusionment that I think they find as well, you must save yourself if you can, or you have to find the right people who will help you. And they find that with Orestes for a little while, but not for very long. So these children are on this journey to find their father. They've been told by their mother that their father is in Germany. Their whole life they... They have wondered about him and wanting to know about him. And so that's why they take the journey. Um, I mean, it turns out that she doesn't know who their father is or where he lives. So in many ways, they're on a journey to nowhere. Like they, they're going to Germany, but they're not going to find him there. When they meet Orestes, and I'll talk more about Orestes later, it's this young man that they meet later in the film on their journey. They meet him once and then they part from him and then they meet him again. And he's really the only person... In the film, for the most part, who is kind to them and who treats them well. And he's like a sort of like a chaperone on this journey (laughs) or like an advocate. He's somebody who supports them and is on their side and tries to help them as much as he can. But he's about to go into the military and his life's a bit complicated. And so, after they meet Orestes, one night he's walking with them and he says, It's as if you're going nowhere. And yet you're going somewhere. And I, I kind of agree with that. I know it's cliched to say this, but I think of this film as a good example of it's the journey, not the destination. Though the destination does matter in this film too. In a way, they are going nowhere. The end of their odyssey is unknown and open-ended. But it's about what they see and what they experience on the way there and how they are changed in the process in both good and bad ways. Orestes is the good. I I almost feel like Orestes was a father figure to them, and I guess he would have maybe been the age of their father. She, Vula, is only 11. Say the father had them when he was in his 20s, He would only be in his early 30s. And I kind of saw Orestes as his mid-20s, late-20s. He was almost like maybe a father figure or maybe a big brother type figure. And he may be one of the only male figures that they've had in their life. You know, they don't have their father. They do at one point in the film go to see their uncle when they're trying to evade the police and they get thrown off the train, I think. But he doesn't seem overly close with them. So I really get the sense that Orestes Orestes almost functions as like a substitute father or older brother in many ways for them. And he is the good. To me, Orestes represents the good and the decent and the humanity, right? But then there's also the bad that happens in the film. The bad would be the rape of Vula for instance and some other experiences that they have and and her near rape at the end when she asks that soldier for money and he takes her behind the train and you think that he's going to rape her but he doesn't over the course of this journey they they get acclimated to both the good and the bad there's both in this film i just think that the world doesn't really care about children it claims to. It pays lip service to it, but I don't think that we care about children as much as we like to think in this world. I mean, I just can only go by American culture, but you see how many children live in poverty, how our schools are underfunded, and things like that. This is a world that is inhospitable to children and can be very harsh for children, and I think Vula and Alexandros represent that. They represent these children who are having having to confront a very brutal world. One of the incidents in the film that I think shows this experience, you know, this loss of innocence, is the the, the horse that dies. I think it's a horse. It might have been a donkey. I'm not quite sure, but it was one or the other. When we see this scene, they're walking in the snow after they've gotten off one of the trains. And they see this woman in a wedding dress and she runs out crying from a building, and there's a man who comes and gets her, probably the groom, and he takes her back inside, and the children are watching all of that, and they probably don't understand any of it. You know, they see so many things in this film that they probably don't understand and they don't know what to make of. It made me think of when I was a child. I was so scared to grow up. I was scared of time passing. I still am. And yet at the same time, I was so impatient to be an adult because I thought that adulthood would bring understanding, that things would make sense and fall into place. Of course, that's not what happened. I'm still watching everything around me like these children. I'm still looking at the world around me and struggling to make sense of it. And I feel that way even more during this pandemic. And there was some kind of quote by Angelopoulos where he was talking about politics. And he said something like, "The more The more you ask me or the more I think about politics, the more I don't understand it. I'm loosely paraphrasing him. And that makes total sense to me. And I feel that as I get older. When I was younger, I was much more idealistic. I was much more hopeful. And I felt like, oh, I can make the world a better place and the world will get better. To see things that are happening now, like with the pandemic and and just different political things that are going on, I just feel like I can't make sense of this. I cannot make sense of everything that I am seeing and feeling. I felt that in those children, that they did not understand what was going on. And I get that feeling when they see this horse. So they're in the snow. The the woman in the wedding dress has gone back in and they're in the snow outside and all of a sudden this horse appears and falls down into the snow and it's quivering and it's dying and Alexandro starts to uncontrollably cry. He's really overcome with grief for this dying horse. Vula touches its fur and in the background of this, The wedding party starts to come out of the building and they're outside in the snow dancing and right there you see life and death side by side. You see it. This is life. This is... The coexistence of beauty and ugliness. The coexistence of horror and jubilation. It's right there in this scene. Like these children are are touching a dead animal and a little boy is sobbing over the death of that animal. Just a few feet away, people are celebrating. And it made me think a little bit of this pandemic of how in innumerable homes around this country, people are taking their last breaths and their families are burying them and having to say goodbye to them and they are going through unspeakable grief and the rest of the world goes on. The rest of the world barely acknowledges it. That's life and death coexisting together and the same thing happened when I lost my dad. Like I lost my dad and it was a clear blue bright day. You know the the sky was bright blue and children were playing outside and the world went on The world around me went on, but how could I go on after I had lost somebody so precious? And so these children are grieving this animal that they didn't even know, but they see death. This might be the first time they've ever viscerally seen death, seen an animal die like this. And then right in the background, people are dancing and celebrating. They are confronting death, confronting this thing that they cannot know and they cannot control and they can only stand there and watch helpless to change any of it. So now I want to talk about their search for their father. I found this to be a really powerful aspect of the film, personally. I think some films were always unpeeling and realizing their meaning for ourselves. When I first saw this film, I I don't remember the father aspect touching me as strongly as it did for me now. Maybe it did and I don't remember it. So I think it's actually taken watching it for a second time for me to realize the meaning that it holds for me. And I think that meaning has really grown and has deepened. I think that they are searching for their father because they know that a piece of them is missing. The father is a mystery that they want to solve, a blankness that they want to feel inside themselves. But the film does not give them, or us as viewers, that closure. The absence remains. The absence of the father. And they have to walk with that absence. They have to learn to build their lives around it, perhaps. The space that they cannot feel, but it is the space that created them. And the mother is also an absence. So this absence is both physical and emotional, I think. I don't think you can ignore the fact that Angelopoulos lost his father in a very brutal way. For about nine months, he thought his father was dead. When his father disappeared during the Greek Civil War in 1944, they came, they arrested him for no reason, and he was gone for nine months. And then he suddenly appeared. Just as he had vanished, he materialized. How in the world could that not have affected Angelopolis? He probably would have been around Vula's age. He would have been around 10 years old or close to that. And I I do wonder if he pulled from that experience and that that is why these children are searching for their father. He has disappeared. He is alive. He's not dead necessarily. He is alive, but he has vanished from their lives. Lives. So they cannot necessarily mourn him because he's not physically dead. He's just not in their life. They just don't know who he is or where he is. But they know that he is most likely still existing. And they feel that missing part of themselves. They know that something is missing in their lives. It's almost like a journey for wholeness or completeness. It's impossible for them to have that. They're not given that wholeness. It's withheld. The completeness is withheld. The answers are withheld because they're not going to find him. He's not in Germany. They don't know his name. Even if he were in Germany, they have no idea who he is. But But in the minds of children, anything is possible. When we're children, we believe fairy tales and the tooth fairy and Santa. We think that Santa goes around the world in one day with his reindeer. We believe that all things are possible when we are children. And unfortunately these children think that they will be able to find their father when they're not going to be able to do that. And at one point, they they write these letters to him. And throughout the film, the letters are read as a voiceover in the film. And at one time, they say, we have never seen you and we miss you. They miss this person that they don't even know, that they've never even seen. And it's just a reminder, I think, that our parents are this ripple inside of us, this constant connection that can never be broken. This thread that extends between you and that person. No matter where they are. And no matter if they are living or they are dead. I will love my father until my last breath. And that will never change. He will always be the center of my life. I will always love him until I can no longer exist. That love will carry me through. It will carry me through this journey that I have to live. That I have to live without him. But we will always be connected. We will always be bound to one another. So they've never known this man. They don't know what he looks like, but they still long for him. And they will never stop longing for him, just as I will never stop longing for my father, who I did know and I did see, who was always a presence and then suddenly became this enormous absence because of his death. But their father is alive. And so I think hope is alive for them that they can find him. They talk about them. They dream about him. And he haunts them because he made them and he created them. And he is their source, their origin, the root and the seed of them. And so that connection will never be broken. And they will always wonder. They will always wonder about him and long for him. And even when Vula finds out that the mother lied, and that he's not in Germany, and she doesn't know who he is. She overhears the uncle talking about that, saying, oh, he's not in Germany, she doesn't know who the father is, she doesn't know where he is. Vula gets very upset, and she says, she confronts the uncle and says that he's lying, and she insists that their father is in Germany. So these children deeply believe this narrative and they have to get to Germany. And I love the letters that are read throughout the film. Here's another one. We've been traveling like a leaf, blowing in the wind. What a strange world. Suitcases, freezing railway stations, words and gestures we don't understand, and the night which scares us, but we are happy we are moving on and then another at another time Vula says in her voiceover we each write to you the same things and we both fall silent before each other looking at the same world the light and the darkness and you there is this deep unshakable aching in these children for their father. They have to go on this journey. And even if they don't find him, they had to go on the journey. They had to try. They had to give it everything that they had. And they at least had to make the attempt to find him, even though they don't find him at all. I wanted to talk about the relationship between Vula and Alexandros because it's very powerful in the film. They are together the entire time for the most part. There are a few times in the film when they're split up, but this is a journey that they have to go on together. They are almost this world unto themselves, like this little bubble, this little microcosm that they live in, where the two of them are just so deeply connected to each other and you can feel it. And I found this to be one of the most beautiful aspects of the film was their friendship, their connection with each other, the way that they lean on each other and share their feelings and everything that they do together. There are so many moments in this film where they're holding each other and I thought that was beautiful. There's a time when they're on the train and they're standing up sleeping and they're holding each other. When things get difficult or they're walking on some of these roads or these these highways, they get tired and sometimes Sometimes Vula will go and she'll hold Alexandros and try to help him to get through it because there's so many times in the film where they struggle. They are lifelines for one another and they are alone in the world. This is a film about loneliness. About two lonely souls searching for the father they think will take away their loneliness or make them feel like they have a place where they belong, a person who wants them. In some ways, these children are exiles. They don't belong anywhere. They don't have a home. I think it speaks to Angelopolis's interests in immigration and refugees and borders. These children traverse borders, they don't seem rooted to any one particular place. Even the home they have with their mother doesn't feel like home to them. That is why they go on this journey to Germany. They're these people who have no place and who belong nowhere. And they're almost on a journey to nowhere, but it is somewhere. (laughs) So they're very interesting characters in that way, where there's really no place for them in this world, and all they have is each other. They seem very disconnected from the mother, and as I said, Vula and Alexandros hold each other often. It happens so much throughout the film. They cling to each other because they only have one another in the whole world, and it reminded me of me and my mom for so long now, you know, 14 years now. All we've had is each other, to depend on, we have a very deep connection because of that. And I think Vula and Alexandros will always have a deep connection because they only have each other because they went on that journey together and survived it, they will be connected the rest of their lives. They're almost like soulmates. They're more than just brother and sister. They're soulmates. And that's what I've always felt about my mother as well, that she's not just my mother, she's my soulmate. And my father was my soulmate too. So I guess I'm very lucky that I've had two of those in my life. So there is this relationship that Vula and Alexandros have together, this very tight, confined world that they've created and they don't let a lot of people into that. And one of the few people that they connect with and that they bring into their world is Orestes. They're walking along a road one day and they come across this bus and Orestes is driving that bus and he offers to give them a ride. He's going to be a companion for a good amount of the film, and he's one of the few people that they meet on their journey who is kind to them and cares for them. Even though he's young, I don't think he totally knows how to take care of children or what to do, but he instinctively wants to help them, and I think he feels their vulnerability. He's an actor. He performs in plays, and in this bus, he drives around, I think, some of the older, this This troupe of older actors, I think these actors are actually sort of a nod to another Angelopoulos film called The Traveling Players, which was about a band of actors that travel around Greece. So I think this is a way for Angelopoulos to nod back to one of his older older films from the 1970s. They travel around Greece and they perform the same play. And in this movie, Landscape in the Mist, they're searching for a theater and nobody will take them. And so they basically have nowhere to perform their play. They're pretty much just walking around. They don't know what to do. And they're wearing clothing and costumes that look like something out of the 40s or 50s. So they look like they're in the wrong decade. While Vula and Alexandros have a good idea of where they're going, they're going to Germany, Orestes does not. He's really drifting. He's going to be joining the military in a few days. Um, He just has his motorcycle that he drives around, but he seems like he's drifting. He doesn't seem like he has a a lot of ambition or a lot of focus or really any idea where he should be. There's a scene with Orestes that gives us a foreshadowing of the very end of the film. He finds this small strip of film and he holds it up to the light, and he asks the children if they see the tree in the mist. They don't see it. He says he's made it up, and really the film strip itself looks like it's just blank. It looks like it has nothing on it, but he gives it to Alexandros. Alexandros later on in the film holds that film strip up and looks at it. I don't know what this means. Honestly, there's so many scenes in the film where I'm not going to give you an interpretation of them because I don't know what they mean. I'm not a film theorist. I I don't know sort of maybe the, the historical context you would need to understand some of these scenes, but I just take them as something mysterious and I try to enjoy them and just take them as they are. Sometimes it's okay to just let something be. And to not try to find some kind of meaning in it. It's just a film strip. And he says, do you see the tree in the mist? That's what he says. And then at the very end of the film, when the children arrive in Germany and cross the border, there's this tree that materializes out of the mist. And it's just a beautiful thing right? And I think you can just appreciate it in that way. They meet Orestes and then they part from Orestes for a little while. And it's during this time when they part from him that Vula is raped by the truck driver. And I'll go into that in a moment. They find Orestes again later on in the film and he is there for them once again. It's almost like they never parted or they were never separated. By this time, the kids are basically sort of running from the police. They try to get on a train. Every time they try to get on a train, they have to jump off of it and run away because they don't have tickets. Or the police find out about them and they have to run away. They're always in peril in some way. They're always having to run and hide. And Orestes takes them under his wing and they get on, they pile on his motorcycle. He takes them to the sea. There's a beautiful scene where he takes them to the sea and to the beach. And what I loved about Orestes was that he treated them like kids. He engages with them in a humane way. And he really gets on their level. And you can tell that he cares about them. When they're with Orestes, anything is possible. They go from the two of them really to a trio. On the road, on an adventure, going to the beach. At one point, they're on the motorcycle with Orestes. And Vula says, I don't want it to ever end. And he asks her what? And she says this. She loves being on that motorcycle with Orestes. And that comes after she's gone through this terrible rape. They are so happy with him. I think that she feels safe with Orestes. She knows that she's not going to be hurt by him. And he is one of the few men who do not hurt her or do not try to hurt her. And when they're on the beach, or Rusty's takes her hand and he asks her to dance. And something that I did come across in my research was Angelopoulos talked about how the actress who played Vula... On the set, she was going through puberty and she was really going through her own coming of age and she actually had a really big crush on the actor that played Orestes He puts his hand on her shoulder and they just stand there on the beach staring at each other. It's almost like he knows what's happened to her, that she was raped by the truck driver. Not that he knows exactly what happened, but that he feels that something happened to her, that she is maybe hiding something and she runs away from him and she goes to the sea by herself. Like she goes to the water and she goes on her knees and she's just rubbing the sand with her hand and Orestes just lets her be. He doesn't try to go over to her and he tells Alexandros not to go over to her either. I don't totally understand the scene because he says she's discovered something great and I don't know what that means. There were interactions in the film that I didn't totally understand, and I'm willing to just admit that and to say, I don't have some big, grand, deep interpretation, but to me, it felt like he could feel that something had changed in her and that she had gone through something traumatic, and I think that she trusts him. I think that she feels connected to him in some way, and then there's their last night with Orestes. He takes them to this dance club for some reason where they really shouldn't be. They're very tired. Uh, Vula and Alexandros are. And they end up just leaving. And they're walking down a road by themselves. And he catches up to them on his motorcycle. He doesn't want them to part this way. He was supposed to drive them to a train station. And he wants to still do that. And he, he just doesn't want them to be mad at him. And eventually he stops the motorcycle. And they stop walking. And he goes up to Vula. And he just holds her. And she starts to sob. It's like she's finally expelling the scream that's trapped inside of her from the rape that happened. Because when she was raped, she made no sound, she was completely silent and she did not cry out, she did not make any sounds at all. And it's almost like when she finally cries in Orestes' arms, she can purge that scream and that grief out of her body for what was done to her. The violation and the horror that was done to her and to her body. When I was watching the scene, I started to cry because I just felt the emotion of it. I felt this little girl just crumbling in his arms and the trauma that she felt and the pain that she felt and I thought of the times when I wish someone would have held me as I cried you know I've been alone so long in my life and I've never really known that I've had to deal with things on my own I've either had to keep them inside myself or write them down. And it's almost like Vula is processing the trauma in the moment as she cries. Maybe she's finally feeling the enormity of it and nothing will ever be the same for her. Like, I guess I just wish there was somebody to hold me when I'm crying, when I'm falling apart. And I don't really have that. And I guess when I see it on screen, when I see it in movies, when I see somebody being held and cared for in that way and being touched, it's like, I guess I realize the absence of it in my life and how much it's missing. And then I also realize how much I long for it and how much I ache for it. I wanted to talk about the rape. I guess I should have talked about the rape before I talked about Orestes but this is the (laughs) this is the order that I did my notes in. So they meet Orestes and then they get parted from him. They get separated from him and they're on their own again. Just Vula and Alexandros. They have to hitchhike because they don't have a ride anymore and they get a ride with this truck driver who's really crude and you feel the vulnerability of the children once they are on their own again and away from Orestes because he was one of the few people who tried to protect them. You feel the the harshness of the world that they're coming up against. The rape scene is probably one of the most powerful rape scenes that I have ever witnessed in cinema. There is this tendency, I think, for rape scenes to be sexualized or eroticized by a lot of directors. This happens in film and it happens in television too, where rape scenes... Are made to be titillating and they're very exploitative I would say and when you're talking about the rape of a child you cannot do that you should not do that you really shouldn't do it for any rape but in particular with an 11 year old girl what Angelopoulos does instead is that he withholds from us And he bars our vision. He bars any kind of glimpse into what takes place when Vula is raped. The truck driver takes her to the back of his truck. Alexandros is sleeping. He remains at the front of the truck. At first she tries to run away from him but he catches her because she's very little. She's helpless. She's defenseless. So he takes her to the back of the truck. There's not a door on the back of the truck. There's just this tarp that's hanging down. It's like a curtain and behind this curtain, Vula is raped, but the camera does not go there. It remains outside of the truck. It's a very long take as well, and there's a lot that's happening within the frame. I like that Angelopoulos does not take us behind that curtain, because I think there are things that are unfilmable. I think there are things that cannot be represented, and he does not even attempt To show that kind of graphic violence. There's no music in this scene, but there is the sound of the traffic of the highway that's nearby. The truck is parked a little ways from the highway. In the distance at one point, you can see two cars that stop, and I think some people get out of them, and then they get back in them, and then they drive away. Those people have no idea that a few feet away from them, a little girl is being raped. Vula does not cry, as I said earlier, she does not scream. And actually the actress insisted on that. The little girl, she's only 11 years old, and she she didn't want to do the scene. Obviously, it was I guess uncomfortable, even though we even though we don't see anything, nothing is simulated. Nothing is dramatized or represented. It's just this tarp hanging down. There's no sounds, there's nothing. She did not want to scream in the scene. I think she was originally supposed to scream. She didn't want to for that scene and Angelopoulos actually preferred it that way. That there was no sound and that there was silence for the most part except for the traffic in the distance. Alexandros at one time comes out of the truck and he's looking for Vula and he's yelling for her but he doesn't know that she's in the back behind the tarp and he doesn't know what's happening to her and eventually the truck driver appears and he comes out of the back of the truck and he goes somewhere he leaves and Vula gradually appears out of the back of the truck out of the darkness of the back of the truck out of the darkness of what's just happened to her first we see her feet with her stockings that have uh, been pushed down They're down around her ankles. Her hair is messed up and there is blood dripping from her right hand. She looks dazed. She looks like she can't even comprehend what has just happened. She wipes the blood on the wall of the truck and that's it. That's the scene. I felt shaken by it. I will be honest with you. I felt absolutely shaken by this scene. And I felt the just horror of what was done to her. How terrible it was. I just, I think it's one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful rape scene I've ever witnessed. The crushing of this child. You feel it in your soul. You hurt for her you cry for her. Unfortunately, part of Vula's coming of age in this film is familiar for so many girls and women who go through these types of experiences of sexual violence at the hands of men. Vula, like many girls, realizes what it means to live in a patriarchal world where you are visible, to men and at the mercy of them. You are vulnerable to their violence and you are defined by their gaze. That is what Vula learns and she is violated and she is harmed. Nothing will ever be the same for her. She is in many ways initiated into the pain of this world into a kind of pain that nobody should ever experience that no woman no girl should ever experience or go through and they leave that truck driver and they're alone again and there's this scene of them walking in the rain afterwards but just Angelopolis withholds everything in your mind you don't even want to imagine the horror of it you don't even want to imagine that kind of terrible violence inflicted on a child your mind can't even go there. it is literally unimaginable the evil of that, and so he doesn't even attempt to try to represent it or visualize it or put it on the screen and there's no need to because we're 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 told everything in just those few scenes, and it is masterful, I think, and it's very important and it's very powerful. just it shook me I, I just felt incredibly shaken and disturbed and unsettled by it deeply. Deeply. Something that I think is fascinating about this film are all these scenes or these details where we don't fully understand them. And I think the stone hand coming out of the sea. Or coming out of the water is one of them. And I want to talk about that. And then I'll talk about the tree. And we'll get to the end of this. It's just mysterious. And it's one of the most famous images from the film. I think a lot of people, even if they have not seen landscape in the mist. They may have seen the image of the stone hand coming out of the water. Possibly. May have seen an image or or seen the actual scene itself. After Vula's rape. They reconnect with Orestes, as I said. They spend more time with him. They end up staying at a hotel. Vula and Alexandros wake up and, or I think it's just Vula at first, and she's looking for Orestes and he's not in his room. He's outside. And while he's outside, this stone hand starts to surface from the water near the hotel. And then the children eventually come outside too. And so Orestes and the children are watching this stone hand float in the water. A helicopter appears and there are strings attached to the hand and it's lifted from the water. And then in the background, you see a lot of apartment buildings and stuff like that. It's just this hand in this water water just, and then it goes from the water into the sky. And it's just this disembodied stone hand floating in the sky. There's no reason for it. There's no explanation for it. I don't know necessarily what it's supposed to mean. I got to thinking about it. What I thought of was that the stone hand is detached from its body, from its source and its origin, like the children are detached from their father and even their mother. If you think about the stone hand, it obviously was part of a statue at one time. It's sort of like a relic, I guess, or an artifact. It should be attached to a to a stone body. It should be attached to some kind of statue, but it is not. It is detached, disconnected, and it's just drifting by itself out in the water, and then it's lifted up into the sky and it disappears. So this hand is floating alone, just like these two children are wandering alone. That's maybe my interpretation of it, but it easily could have not been included in the film. I mean, Angelopoulos, I think, took a chance with some of these things, including them in the film. I think, again, this is a good example of how you as an audience member or as a viewer, you have to be an active participant. And you have to figure out, how do these pieces fit together? How does all of this come together? What does it mean? Why is this hand appearing out of nowhere? Why are they looking at a dead horse? You know, all kinds of different um, things in this film where you're like, what is this? <laughs> it's, a, it's just a stunning film. It's, it's one of the scenes that you don't forget. It almost sears itself into your brain. It just, yeah, it's an image that comes back to you pretty, you know, pretty periodically, I think, when you think about the film. It's just an example of a thing in the film where you may not understand it and you just have to sit with that not knowing or not understanding everything about it. Finally, I want to talk about the end. I want to talk about the tree and, and my own thoughts about this ending. Throughout so much of the film, they've had to sneak onto trains and then run off of them because they did not have tickets. At the end of the film, they leave... Orestes for the final time, and we know that he's probably going to join the military, so they're alone again, and they end up at a train station, and they don't have any money for tickets, but they want to get to Germany. Vula ends up approaching the soldier and asking for money, and as I said earlier, it appears like it's going to go one way. He wants her to go with him behind some trains where they'll be hidden from view, and it appears that he is going to rape her or violate her in some way in exchange for money but he ends up not doing that and he just gives her the money that she asks for because she goes up to him and just asks will you give me this money so he gives it to her and they are able to finally get train tickets and that's how they get to Germany they buy a train ticket to Germany but they need passports at the border crossing they don't have passports. They have to sneak off the train again and cross the border surreptitiously. They get on a boat. There's even a moment where they're shot at, I think. It was very dramatic. We finally see them again because they cross the the water, cross the border at night. We can't see them very well when they're on the boat. When we finally do see them, they are both enveloped in this very thick Missed. Alexandros tells Vula not to be afraid, and he'll tell her a story. And he talks about how, in the beginning, there was darkness, and then the light. This echoes a story that the children were reading at the beginning of the film uh, about the creation of the universe and the beginning of the world. Is this the end of their journey, or is it only the beginning? When they make it here to Germany, when they make it to this mist-covered landscape. This fog-covered landscape. The fog starts to dissipate and the children are standing in this massive field and in the distance is one lone tree. The only tree in the landscape. Everything else is flat except for this one tree. The children run towards the tree and when they get to it, they put their arms around it. So what is this tree? Is it a symbol? Why do they embrace it? Because they've made it to Germany. Kind of like, you know, when you get somewhere and you kiss the ground. Like, literally kiss the ground. Is it a stand-in for the father that they long to find? I don't know. I don't have any big, deep, grand interpretations. I think a lot of people interpret the scene however they want to. I think for me, as I said way earlier in this episode, I do think the tree represents hope. I think that it's something for them to hold on to and to cling to after this traumatic, difficult, exhilarating journey that they have gone on from their home in Greece all the way to Germany. Throughout the film, Vula and Alexandros have embraced each other and held each other. And now when they find the tree, they both hold the tree. Angelopoulos mentioned that this tree was from another of his films, Voyage to Cythera. I think he said so. It's also another example of him inserting a symbol or an image from a previous film in his uh, filmography. I have not seen Voyage to Cythera. So I don't know how that fits in. But so for him, the tree represented that of something from a previous film that he wanted to insert. For us, the tree could mean a million different things. But I do see it as hope, for sure. There is a deep, almost impenetrable mystery about this film. Things appear in it that you're not sure how to interpret, but maybe you don't need to. I was always frustrated, I remember, in literature classes both in high school and in college. I studied English literature when I went to college, but I got so frustrated at times. For example, when we dissect a poem or a short story, there is value in that and it is important. It goes without saying. It's important to understand a text To understand historical importance and, you know, why people read it and all the things that are happening in the sentences and in the lines, I absolutely think there's value in that. Same thing when it comes to film studies in college. The way people dissect a film, for instance, it's very different than the way I approach film, but I would never say that it's not valid or it's not important. It's just different, and it's not the way that I engage with film. I don't use film theory. I'm not interested in really academic theories about films. I'm interested in the historical significance of films, of course, and my own connection and feelings about them. So there's absolute value, for sure, and that goes without saying. But there's equally just as much value, I think, in letting yourself feel a work of art without understanding everything about it or picking apart every aspect of it or reducing it to a neat set of clues and symbols that can be deciphered. Sometimes you have to sit with the not knowing. I prefer mystery, the ineffable, like looking up at the stars at night and feeling the vastness of what is above me. I know the facts of the stars, I know the millions of years it takes for the light to reach me, but I also gaze into that darkness and have no words for what moves inside of me. That is what I feel with many films too, and with this film in particular. I also feel some kind of spiritual connection to Theo Angelopoulos. This film speaks to me, and there's not an explanation for everything, and I actually love that, and I think it almost gives the film a bit of a spiritual dimension or something that you can't name, something unspeakable that comes over you as you watch it. I do think the tree is hope, as I said. It's the only tree in the entire landscape. How did it come to be there? How did it survive did someone plant it? To me, the tree endures. It survives. In a way, it's a symbol of life. And it reminds me a bit of the tree of life. And I did cover Terrence Malick's film, The Tree of Life, if you want to listen to that episode. When I think about trees, and I ta- I think I talked about trees in that episode. I've always loved trees. They've always represented symbols of life to me because they regenerate themselves season after season. In the wintertime, they lose their leaves, they are barren, they are stripped bare by the cold, and you think there's no way they can come back from that. To me, it's still a miracle when you see these barren trees with nothing on them, and then the spring and the summer come, and they are just lush, and full, and verdant, and I just absolutely love it. They're just blossoming. They're alive. They are alive. That's what trees are to me. They're symbols of life, regeneration, survival, rebirth. That even when you're going through the winter, through the darkness, through the cold, that you can regenerate. You can come back. You think you can't come back. You think that you are dead. You're dead inside. But maybe there's hope for you. Maybe you can still bloom again. Maybe you can still endure and keep on living and surviving. So that's what trees are to me. And so when I see these children hold this tree, they're holding life. They're clinging to life because they've seen death. They've seen the animal that died. Vula was probably scared for her life as she was being raped. She may have felt close to death in that moment and like she was going to be hurt and she was protecting Alexandra's too. So they have had instances where they have, I think, felt close to death and peril and they felt very vulnerable and the tree is them holding on to life. And I do feel like, is this the end of their journey? Or is this just the beginning of something else? And what comes next for them in Germany or just next in their life? Because they've gone through this transformative journey. They have lost their innocence. They have gone from that innocence to that experience. And so now the rest of their lives begin you know, the aftermath of the journey and the way that it has affected them and shaped them and changed them. So is this the end or is this the beginning? And I think Angelopolis makes us feel like this is another beginning. That this is another phase or another period of their life. And that they will continue and they will go on and they will survive despite some of what they have been through. And Vula will survive and she will continue and she will be resilient. And he definitely gives us hope with that tree. Could you imagine the scene without the tree? And it's just this barren, flat landscape and nothing. The tree is the hope for the future. It is hope for uh, survival and continuing. The continuation of life. Maybe these children will find a home. A sense of belonging. But at least they always have each other. And they always have that connection to each other. So that is my discussion of this film. I hope that you enjoyed it. I am really glad that I talked about this film. I'd like to give a big shout out to my wonderful patrons: Pierce, Amir, Christine, David, Eddie, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Tyler, Juan, Till, J.D., Vanessa, Paulina, Olivia, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for being patrons. You make the podcast possible. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.